Welcome back to episode nine of The Young Startup. Today, we get the opportunity to interview a friend of ours, Rainer, someone that has built and exited out of Amazon businesses. And today, we break down exactly every single step of the process in regards to going ahead and exiting out of the business, but also how much Amazon has evolved over the past five, six years of selling on Amazon. Super excited for you guys all to listen in on this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode here with The Young Startup. Today, we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Rainer. Rainer was actually connected with us uh, from a, a close friend of ours, Michael. Um, you know, He was willing to hop on a call with us, and, and we were just so impressed with the knowledge that he had about Amazon and his journey. And, and we thought it was foolish for us not to ask him to come on his podcast. And of course, he agreed to, which is why he's here today. Um, so Rainer, thanks so much for, for being here um, and spending the time to chat with us and our audience. Uh, we're going to be going into something very, very interesting today. And Rainer's going to be talking about um, how he's been able to exit out of uh, a business in the Amazon world. And he's going to break down that process for us, uh, for the people that are interested in getting into Amazon and want to realize what that opportunity looks like when it comes to actually exiting. So uh, Rainer, I'm going to let you jump in. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story, your Amazon journey, um, and just who you are as an individual? Sure, right on. Eric, Brian, first off, thanks for having me here on the podcast today. I got started in Amazon e-commerce back in 2015. I saw a Facebook ad from Amazing Selling Machine, and I think back then it was Amazing Selling Machine 4, and it said, hey, learn how to sell on Amazon. And this was back in the day before Amazon was was quite the household name it is today. So basically saw the ad, clicked on the ad, went through the sales funnel, said, what the hell? This course is just a few thousand bucks. I'm willing to give it a shot. I grabbed one of my best friends from high school, said, I'm going to bootstrap this thing with 10K of my own funds. Like, you want to see where this can go? And so a few months after we got started, we launched our first product. It was a compression sock. And a few months after that, we were like making some serious money. So at the end of 2015, we said, let's get super serious about it. 2016 went full bore into making it a full-time thing. We grew that company's revenue after expanding the SKU lineup that we had to about 1.7 million in revenue. And we exited from that brand in 2018 for a little bit north of 1.1 million plus earnout incentives. Damn. What a story. Compression socks, man. You know, Compression it, just, it socks. just comes, comes <laughs> to show that, you know, the power of the internet, you know, people buy things that you may not necessarily think they would buy. Um, but the fact that you were able to build a SKU line and a whole brand around it and then exit it for 1.1 million, just crazy. Um, so in terms of that, that project or, or that brand in specific, um, 1.1 mm -hmm. million, you grew it to 1.7 million. Um, how many years were you running it before you sold it? And, um, and what did that look like? Sure. So we were running it for about two years full time. So 2016 and 2017. Obviously, we started in the summer of 2015, but it was more of like a side project, more like, oh, on the weekends, let me see what I can do. So nice. I'd say two, two years full time. And at the start of 2018 is when we had decided to sell it. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. We're very much very similar. You know, when everyone jumping into the Amazon space, they always almost want to prove the concept. I think a lot of people and those gurus out there, they really try to promote it. And 
it comes across as that get rich quick scheme. So we dove in with a very mm-hmm. similar mindset, you know, prove the concept to ourselves, work on it as a side hustle. But as soon as we saw that opportunity and we knew that we could make the money doing this business on a full-time basis, we took that leap of faith and uh, it's been fruitful ever since to say the least. <laughs> Absolutely. Just out of curiosity, how much SKUs did you get up to over that, uh, I guess, two-year two full-time period? Two-year full-time period? I think we had, if you don't include variations, I think we had like 10 unique products. Obviously, with compression socks, you need multiple variations because of Sorry. sizing and coloring and all that stuff, but about 10. Yeah. Cool. I actually would like to dig in a little bit more on that because, you know, I've always, I haven't necessarily been appealed to get into any kind of apparel, um, shoes, anything along those lines for that exact reason, due to the fact that there's so many different SKUs. Was that a challenge for you out of curiosity in terms of managing fulfillment or managing, uh, inventory projections, things along those lines? Absolutely. I personally would probably not do an apparel related, a private label brand again, just because of that. The good thing mm-hmm. about compression socks though, is that it's not as specific of a sizing as like a t-shirt, for example, where mm-hmm. somebody's going to want it to fit a very specific way. So yeah. the rate of returns for us were pretty low because we essentially had like small, medium and large, which fit a wide range of people. People might be in between sizes. So oftentimes it worked out for them. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, taking them back to that first business that you sold there, Rainer, um, what are some of the challenges that, that you faced um, that, you know, either seriously set you back or things that, you know, our audience can really learn from? One of the things that I had to learn the hard way was just the mental grit that you need to be successful on Amazon. It was one of those things where I, me and my best friend got into the Amazon space. We were like, whoa, we're making real money. Let's get other people that we know into this space because it was just a great opportunity for the everyday person to make a real meaningful business. And one of the things is, is just the mental grit. You're going to have setbacks for sure. There's going to be days where you don't feel like moving yourself forward, but you need to just Pick, your, pick yourself up off the ground when you're having a bad day and just continue chugging along. Yep. I'd say that's, that's one thing. The second thing is to understand that you are playing by Amazon's rules. And mm-hmm. as much as you may curse at them, as much as you may hate how things, things are, that's not as productive as saying to yourself, okay, well, I accept that Amazon is this way. What can I do in spite of that or in light of that to make sure that I'm still working and being successful on their playground? I love that. I love that. Nobody's ever put it that way, but it's so true, right? Like we, sometimes we need to abide by rules. Amazon's doing us a favor. They're allowing us to use their platform. We can become millionaires and make a lot of money off of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of forums, the amount of threads that I see on, po- on, on chats about people complaining about Amazon, it is true. There's, there's hiccups that we have to deal with, but in any single business, there's always going to be something that we have to deal with that we need to get past. So I love that, um, you know, the advice that you gave was basically mindset related, right? That's, that's Absolutely. a key component to entrepreneurship, regardless of what you do, whether it's selling on Amazon or doing anything, building a full on SAS or SaaS product or anything like that. There's going to be setbacks. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Totally. And, um, you know, with, uh, with what, with what worked with your business back then, I'm curious because you started in 2015 nowadays, Amazon mm-hmm. and, the, and the landscape of Amazon has changed so much. Um, 
is there anything that crosses over or how has the world changed and how, how have you been able to adapt to that um, in terms of like staying on top of what's actually changing? Yeah, I think Amazon is a very different place today than it was five years ago when we first got started. I'd still say, I'd say like in 2014, 2015, it was about just getting anything up. If you got mm. a product on Amazon, you would probably make some money. Now, we all know that's not how it is today. Yeah. But some of the things haven't changed. And some of those things are having something that's a really high quality product. If you have a really high quality product, back then and even today, you're still probably going to have decent odds of success. But even with that, I think with where we're at today, even though it's very different than 2015, if you're doing the right things, you're focusing on the right areas of your business, then you can absolutely still be just as successful today as people were back then. Yeah. Cool. I'd like to dig in a little bit further in regards to, you know, coming up with that premium product. Do you have a specific process in regards to how you would essentially find a product that's selling well on Amazon and how you would come to market with a better offer? How do you go about that? Sure. So we have a system in which we're trying to identify products that have high demand and moderate to low competition. We don't mind some competition, but Obviously, we don't necessarily want to get into something that's super high demand and super competitive just because you'll need to invest a lot of financial resources in order to start competing with them. So assuming you have a product that's high demand and moderate to low competition, the thing we always ask ourselves is, okay, what can we do based off of the average product in this niche to really make our thing stand out? Can we improve it in some way? Can we make it more beautiful in some aspect? But we don't want to come in and say, hey, we're just going to copy another product and think we're going to have some success. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, our very first product, knock on wood, it, it's our hero product. It does you know, 50% of our revenue, but very, very similar approach. I love how you said, you know, find a product that's high in demand, but has low competition. I also take the look at, you know, has it been increasing over time? Because to put things in perspective, our first product, I think on average was doing like 7,000 in monthly revenue, had about 150 reviews. Fast forward two years, we identified that the graph, you know, a Google Trends graph or a viral launch graph was increasing over time. That product now does on average like forty to $50,000 in monthly revenue. And then the competition, there's like 2,000 average reviews. So we got in when it was low. And now we've kind of boxed everyone else out. And I think that's kind of the, the best scenario to get into with a product. That's yeah. a great point. And I totally agree with that. You don't necessarily want to go into a niche that may be dying, right? Yeah. Like weighted blankets, I think, is one of those where <laughs> it was super big in 2018, started to peak, and, and it's still generally high. But I would imagine that the, the niche itself is no longer growing. So I think that was a great point, Brian. That's where it comes in where, you know, it's important to launch multiple SKUs because, you know, there's always going to be peaks and valleys and there's always going to be trending products, but it's how you diversify that, right? Very similar to investing. You want to have a diverse portfolio. So um, definitely resonate with that. Another thing that you mentioned was, you know, as long as you're focusing on the right areas in the modern age compared to before, um, you can still succeed. Are there specific areas that you think people, you know, again, in, in 2021 should focus on and really like kind of keen into? Um, right now? Yeah, back in the day, 
we would just say, hey, focus on niches that are are big or that there's generally like wide mass appeal. Yeah. These days, I think you can start getting into some of the sub niches. So mm-hmm. an, an example of that could be like in home and kitchen products. If you're selling like a pot, for example, there's uh, wax is like a very specific type of pot, but mm. wax in 2015 would not have been great to get into because the demand was so low and it's a very sub niche type of product. But wax these days, if you look at that niche, I think that's actually a pretty good niche to consider. Mm, so like even that. more specific. Yeah. Going sub mm-hmm. sub. Yeah, I guess our, our main brand is exactly like that. We're in tools and home improvement, but we've really focused in on only launching products that are more so around the organizational niche. So we're going very sub there. Makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, you know, I'd like to dive in, um, you know, Eric, Eric mentioned that we're going to get into something very interesting, how to exit out of a business and essentially the stages within that. So first of all, you know, we know you have experience. Um, you've exited out of one brand so far. I've exited out of one brand, correct. Awesome. And then you're in the process of building and exiting out of how many more? A, a second one that we plan to sell. We've gone through the process of potentially selling at the start of this year. We cool. decided that we, the business is still growing at a rate that we like, and we're still very enthusiastic about it. So we're going to continue growing it. But awesome. our intention is to sell that second brand at the start of next year. And then some of the other brands that we have in the pipeline within the year following that. So idea is to sell like one or two brands every year. That's Excuse awesome. me, one brand every one to two years. Cool. I love awesome. that. Awesome. Cool. Now, one thing I want to jump in there, Brian, is Amazon is very much so, and I say this to all my students as well, but Amazon is very much so. It's it's a process that's very easy to repeat. And you know, you by saying that, like imagine being able to exit out of a business every one to two years, selling for one to two million plus. I know that you're gonna be getting a lot more for this new brand. Um, but that's a serious payout and regular payout. Um, I talk about the same thing with product research or a product launch. Once you lock down a product launch, you know what works, you know what works for your brand, your customer base, you can very much so take that that launch strategy and go and repeat it. Now, there is going to be times where you might have to course correct, of course, so be very mindful of that. But once you get it, you get it. It's it's like second nature. And uh, you know, I love how you were able to break it down. Same thing for selling businesses. Absolutely. And one of the reasons why I like this style is that with every brand that you build, by exiting from that brand, you're actually de-risking yourself long term. If I just had one big brand and I focused on building it over the course of 10 to 15 years, I may not be able to de-risk by taking money off the table until I ultimately exit that brand way down the line. But if we have a tight focus where we say, hey, let's build a brand, let's do the processes and grow it in the way we know that we can grow it tremendously in a short period of time and then hand it off to a buyer or an acquirer who may have more financial resources, who may have more personnel to keep growing the business, then I can de-risk myself by taking that exit and then plowing some of those proceeds into a new brand and start accelerating the growth of the newer brands that I want to build. Cool. Mm. I love that. I love that perspective. Cool. So let's get into let's get into how to exit out of a brand. First of all, um, please break down essentially the stages um, that we look at when when we are exiting a brand, and then let's just kind of dive into you know what's involved with those stages and like any specific maybe do's and don'ts, tips and advice within each stage. Sure. So one of the big 
changes to the industry these days from 2015 is actually acquisition and exits. If you wanted to sell your brand back when we sold our first one in 2018, you either used a platform or a marketplace like Empire Flippers or something like that, or you tried to do it yourself, which was very challenging, or you went with a broker. And all of these have their pros and cons. We ultimately chose to go with a broker because we had felt that the the broker had a network of contacts that would enable us to maximize the value of our asset. On the flip side of that, the broker took a broker will take anywhere from 10 to 15% off your purchase price. So it's not an insignificant amount of money. Mm-hmm. So for 2018, it was totally worth it. Now, these days, I'm sure you guys have heard of the rise of these Amazon aggregators, companies like Thrasio, Heyday, Elevate Brands, who have basically raised venture-style money, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, Mm -hmm. to buy FBA businesses like ours and to scale them and to take them to the next level. And so for me, when we talk about exiting a brand, I'd like to focus on that context of working directly with these Amazon aggregators, sidestepping the brokers and the marketplaces, because I personally think that's where you have the greatest opportunity to get the most bang for your buck and to minimize the amount of commission fees or brokerage fees that you would have to pay by going through a marketplace or going through a broker. Yeah, I, I love that point. And I think, you know, ever since talking to you the first time, we were actually chatting with, uh, with brokers before and I think you changed our mindset there. And, you know, after speaking to a couple of companies that acquire businesses and, and focus on actually acquiring and, and continuing to build is they also have the team, right? So, you know, we spent so much time mm-hmm. building this little baby of ours, especially if it's your first business, handing it over to the wrong buyer is almost like a punch in the face. You know what I mean? Because that could be your, your business could potentially plummet from there. But if you're handing it over to a very qualified team, you know, you know, it's in good hands and you're only going to see more growth and you're probably going to be very, very much attached to watching that, that growth with a different owner, essentially. Yeah. And to, to further your point, Brian, this is one of the reasons why I personally think selling to an Amazon aggregator is going to be better than selling to a private party, because let's say you're just selling it to another person who's never run an FBA business before. And there's an earnout incentive attached to, to your purchase. Mm. That person is who knows if they're going to grow your business, right? How are they going to be able to grow your business better than you did if they're just learning the ropes? But when you sell to an Amazon aggregator, to your point, they have the personnel, they have the resources, financial, and they have maybe strategies that you didn't, didn't do or didn't execute. So you have pretty good faith that, Hey, if, part of my earnout is and is requires the business to grow at least i have good amount of faith that they'll be capable of doing that and hitting those milestones needed for me to realize that extra profit that i would get in my pocket after end of year 1 and end of year 2 yeah that's another great point you know um the the ongoing income we always talk about you know building amazon business to get passive income so you know you sell your business for a massive return you still have if you take the right route and you you exit with the right um company, I guess, or, or, or business owner, um, you still get commissions pretty much for two years, up to three years in some businesses as well, which is phenomenal. It's just like an ongoing Mm -hmm. stream of money. It's insane. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And while they, and while different term sheets will have different, obviously different components and different terms, what you're seeing these days, that's very common when incentives are aligned, meaning that 
your incentive as a seller is aligned with the, the party who's buying your business is when you include an earnout agreement. Because when you include an earnout agreement, you as the seller of that business are basically saying, I have faith that this is a great business and that it will continue to grow. So that's just something to keep in mind is when you are aligned with getting earnout incentives as part of your purchase agreement, that ensures to the seller, to the buyer, it gives them reassurance that, hey, I'm buying a good business because the sellers also have faith. They're putting their money where their mouth is and we're going to grow this thing over the long haul. Yeah, absolutely. I had a question cool. about that actually, Rainer. Um, you know, we sure. talked to a couple a couple companies. Thrasio was one, um, and then <clears throat> we spoke with another. Now, Thrasio, we didn't get into the to the actual details of what that earnout incentive looked like. Um, but are mm -hmm. you seeing more so? Is it based off of profit? And the reason I asked that is because um, the other company we spoke with. <clears throat> they actually did an earnout incentive based off of revenue growth. So where I see that mm -hmm. being beneficial is that, you know, you may obviously probably, you probably will get a lower percentage, but what I can imagine, and I don't know if this is of course the case, cause I haven't sold a business quite yet. Um, but I can imagine that, you know, a business like Thrasio, for example, an aggregator, let's say they purchase the, the, the business, they put a lot into the business and, you know, they're making profits, but they're also doing a lot of reinvestment. So, balance sheet, mm. your EBITDA at the end of the year is, let's say it's $0. Do you get any money? <laughs> yeah, it, it all depends. And so from the term sheets, we went through the, the process of valuating, getting business valuations for our current brand at the start of this year. We spoke with nine aggregators, excuse me, we reached out to 10 aggregators, spoke with nine, offered those, our, our financial package to those nine, received LOIs or term sheets from five of them, and all of them in the earnout in agreement, they all had a component that was based off of the seller's discretionary earnings or our net profit from the asset. So we did not didn't we did not receive any offers that were based off of revenue growth. Got it. Okay, cool. That's good to know. <clears throat> cool. So um, again, let, let's kind of dive into each step here. So we can even put into perspective. I know you sure. went through the the kind of the process with your your re, or your brand current state um, earlier this year. So what would be that first step? I heard you know financial package. Is that one of the first things that you're mm -hmm. looking to prepare? Yeah. So if we take a holistic view and take a step back and just see what this entire process of selling your FBA business is like, I, I like to break it down into five steps. First is preparation. Second is outreach. Third is negotiation. Fourth is due diligence. And then fifth is asset transfer and closing. So let's break each one of those down step by step. First is preparation, making sure that you have all of your books in order, all of your numbers in order, your PLs, all of the stuff that these aggregators are going to be looking for. You want to make sure you have that upfront and ready to go before you reach out to them, because that's going to show when you actually do reach out to them that you're ready to rock. Like we are fully prepared to engage in conversations. So after you're prepared, then you do some outreach. I would highly recommend that you make a list of all the potential aggregators that you'd want to talk to. And once you make that list, you reach out to them all at once. The reason being is because you want to control the timeline and you want to control the frame here. When you reach out to all of them all at once, it makes sure that you are being focused and that you can tell 
all of them like, hey, I'm reaching out to a bunch. These are the timelines we're working with. Do Are you interested in this engaging in this dialogue? So for those that are, you take it to the next step and it's negotiations. You send them your financial package. They There may be some back and forth in which they ask you some questions. But at the end of that, assuming your financial package is in good standing order, you can expect to receive an offer within one to two weeks. So once you get that, that offer, you're then going to go through a process of negotiation. If you have more than, if you have one offer, that's okay. If you have two offers, that's good. If you have three or more offers, that's great. Because then it makes negotiation really easy. You can then pit the offers against one another yeah. until the, the players all, all reveal their best offer. And then you choose that one. Once you settle on one, you'd go through due diligence where they would basically do a scrub of all your, your financial information, your tax returns. That's really when they get into the nitty gritty of things. And assuming that all goes well, you set a date to close, you transition, you probably provide some support and ongoing support for about 30 to 45 days. And then you ride off into the sunset, go on vacation in Bali and retire for a year before you come back and do it again. That's exactly what you did, didn't you? When you, fir- when you first sold your business? You went over to Bali? Yeah. When we first sold our first business, the month after I proposed to my now wife. And then a year after that, we got married in Bali, surrounded by 150 of our family and friends. So it was it was really life-changing for me, not just the sale itself, but what it enabled me to do beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what does that, you know, that entire process that you just broke us down, you know, what is the quickest turnaround time that you can expect from, you know, preparing or maybe not preparing, but as soon as you start like courting and reaching out to people until like the actual closing date, what does that timeline typically look like? Um, in the fastest sense, again, obviously there'll be some external factors that, that come into the equation, but, um, if everything works out extremely smooth, what would that look like? Mm Mm-hmm. So let's say you were prepared, you had all your information prepared on day one. And to give you an example of how prepared we like to be, it took me 30 minutes to put our financial package together because we are updating it regularly on a, on a month-to-month basis, having our distributed team members in the Philippines always ensuring that, hey, anytime we needed to sell, we'd be ready to go. So that's the 30 minutes that it took me to put that financial package together. But once wow. you have all of that in order from outreach to receiving term sheets to negotiation to due diligence and then close that can be as short as 30 days wow that's a quick turnaround move fast <laughs> it can be very quick yeah most most aggregators if you go on their website that's actually one of their strong marketing points is they say hey we move very quickly through these deals mm-hmm. because once you once you've made the the commitment to sell, you don't want it to linger, right? Like it's like pulling off a bandaid. You want to do it as quickly as possible. (laughs) Obviously you don't want to rush through it, but you want to make sure that it's a top priority for you and the person buying your business. So a lot of aggregators will say as short as 30 days. Realistically, I think 45 days is a good benchmark with a up to 60 days to account for any hiccups or setbacks, or maybe some, some back and forth in that process. Yeah. I'm curious about those setbacks actually. Like it, you know, obviously with the business you sold, I'm not sure how smooth of a transition transition that was, but you know, if somebody was selling their business, what are some things that, um, you know, buyers can expect, um, they need to be able to answer. Um, Mm -hmm. what are some hiccups that could come up? Like what are, what are reasons why a a buyer might be like, you know, I don't want to deal with this business. 
Um, like what are some of those things in your mind? So for me, one of the most important things when going into this process as a seller for us, the business owners, is transparency and honesty. Because if you are trying to hide something in the beginning or you're trying to be underhanded about something, it's going to show up in the numbers during due diligence. So let's say you're selling your business and we all know ranking giveaways, full price buys, it is a common strategy to get your rank going. And Amazon aggregators know this. So if you during uh, when you're upfront with them, if they say, oh, how have you ranked your products in the past? If you don't make mention of that, they're going to see that, oh, well, <laughs> in the financials, there's like these weird line items where you're sending people money through PayPal and all that stuff. So that could set you back. So I think being transparent and honest is super duper important. Like I think that just goes in general in life, but especially mm-hmm. when you're looking to sell the business, because if you lose that trust in any way, shape or form, it makes, it just derails the process in a way where the whole deal could fall apart. Mm-hmm. Very Fair good enough. point. Very good point. Um, and then the other question I had as well, just cause you know, this wasn't something I was fully aware of until, you know, actually just a little bit before we talked about it, but SDE seller discretionary earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the number that buyers look at. Um, if you don't mind breaking that down and, and what that actually entails, just so people can get some perspective. Absolutely. So let's start with just the sale itself. What was a learning point for me when we went to sell our business the first time is that buyers actually don't buy your business. They don't buy your company. They don't buy it. They buy the asset which is basically the FBA account. And the reason for this is it makes things very simple. If they bought your company, then they would be responsible for all the taxes that your company has to pay. They would be responsible for any like liens or claims against it. So it's actually much easier for them and for you if they just buy the brand asset. So with that in mind, the way they value your business is something called seller's discretionary earnings. And what that is, it's essentially the net profit of your brand of your brand asset. So what that means is you basically take the cost of operating that asset, your FBA business, and then you add back things into it. Excuse me. You start with the profit and loss of your business, and then you add back things that the new buyer would not incur if they took it on. So let's say you guys go out to dinner. Well, the new buyer doesn't need to go out to dinner to run your business. So you're going to add that back in. Well, let's say you have a draw where you're paying yourselves money to compensate for running the business. Well, the new buyer isn't going to have to pay you guys to continue running the business. So you can add that back in. So Mm -hmm. Another way to think about it is what are the essential costs to continue to run this business when a buyer takes it over? Anything that is not an essential cost does not go into factoring your seller's discretionary earnings. Got it. So we're talking like pretty much like cost of goods sold, advertising. Those are like the main things pretty much. Yeah. Advertising, software subscriptions, if you have that. Ranking campaigns. Now, this is kind of a a gray zone here because (laughs) one can argue like, hey, I ran a ranking campaign once just to get the initial rank going, but I don't need to incur that cost to maintain the rank now. So some aggregate 
aggregators that I've spoken with said, okay, yeah, add that back in to your profit. But other aggregators have said, well, no, not really. That is part of the process of, of start, you know, maintaining the business and growing it. So they won't. So ranking campaigns is, is kind of a gray zone in Fair terms enough. of what you'll need to discuss with that particular aggregator, how they view it. Fair enough. Fair enough. And then, you know, you mentioned you went through this process at the beginning of the year. Um, could we talk about the multiples that you're seeing in the market right now? Because I know that the appetite for yeah. the purchase of Amazon businesses, you know, this year in specific is, is really crazy. Um, what were you getting? Yeah. So let's talk about the state of, of business. When, yeah. you, when we talk about the state of the economy in general, the state of the economy is that money is super cheap. Money is super cheap right now to borrow, right? Interest rates are at all time low. And so a lot of these firms, these aggregators are raising a ton of money, tens of millions of dollars to buy up aggregators. So now that there's more demand in the space, obviously that's going to drive up asset prices. So back in the day in 2018, what was common to see for, as a multiplier of your SDE was anywhere from 1.5 to, to 3x, for our, our previous business, we got 2.25x our SDE, which was pretty good at the time. These days, what you're seeing is anywhere from 3 to 6x your SDE. So you're seeing a lot more money going on the table. And just to give you guys some hardcore numbers, our SDE for 2020 was a little bit north of 5 million. 500,000 for our current brand in question. And the best offer that we received all in when you factor in earnout incentives and all of that jazz was a little bit short of 3 million. So we were right at that 6X multiplier. Let's go. That's massive. I was just going to say like, crap, you yeah. could have made a lot more money on your previous brand, the compression socks brand, if that multiple was yeah. then. <laughs> That's crazy. Totally. That, means, that means your SDE was probably around a similar a similar point or yeah, similar point to what it was with your current business. Is that correct? With your, the first That's business? That's correct. Interesting. Yeah. Our, our first one, our SDE was, I believe it was like 475 K that, that trailing 12 month period in which they use that to value your business. And then this, this current business was, I believe like 525 or something like that, but they wow. were very similar. That's incredible. So you're going for an even bigger exit. I'm, I'm excited to see what that number looks like down the road in a year. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, our goal is to, to get offers for 5 million at the start of next year. Woo! 5 That's million awesome. all in. Do you think that the, uh, the state's going to change in terms of, um, you know, these multiples being as high as they are right now? I think there's a couple of things at play here. One is the tailwinds that COVID gave to e-commerce sellers. Yeah. So everyone in 2020 just got this huge boost in which the Amazon pie became super big. So even if your slice of the pie stayed the same or was smaller, the overall pie was bigger. So that was great for you. And I think that trend will continue this year. So that's one thing to look out for is like, how long is this tailwind going to help? On the flip side of that is how long is money going to continue to stay cheap for in mm -hmm. terms of being able to pour cash into buying up these businesses? So I personally think my, my own outlook, given current conditions, are the next one to two years, 2021, 2022, and probably in a little bit into 2023, are going to be prime time to sell FBA businesses. Love okay. it. 
I'd like to I'd like to dive in a little bit further into the preparation stage. You said like it was very simple for you to put your financial package together. It took you 30 minutes. What are some of the things that a seller could do um, pretty much on a monthly basis, I guess, um, in order to to make that process very similar and, and short like yours was? Sure. So one is to ensure that you are always calculating your monthly PL or your monthly SDE. We use those terms kind of interchangeably, even though in an accounting perspective, they're very different. But just in the context of Amazon sellers and the way we think about our business, let's use those terms synonymously. And the way you can do that is, is actually very simple. There's only three really things that you need to calculate your monthly profit. It's your, your Amazon business report the summary report that's paid out, it shows your revenue and then it shows your expenses there. You couple that with the units that you sell on Amazon. You take a screenshot of your sales dashboard broken out by parent ASIN for that given month. And then you use those units and then you build a spreadsheet that factors into the cogs of those. And then you, at the very bottom, you just subtract all the things that are required to, for the ongoing maintenance of your business, your software subscriptions, your advertising costs, all of that jazz. And then at the very bottom in that super simple PNL, you will see what your monthly SDE is for that. And that is by and far the most important thing that you can do to make sure that you're always staying ready and that you just have an accurate assessment of how your business is truly performing. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that's something Eric and I, to be quite quite frank with you, didn't do until we met you. <laughs> we just started doing it. We kind of <laughs> we went back and, and saw, but I think it was great to kind of put into realization that, you know, having this number on a monthly basis also allows you to hit the goals that you set at the beginning of the year, right? Because it, it puts into perspective what you're currently doing and what you need to achieve. And if you need to, you know, have advanced any kind of advanced strategies or anything to implement to increase that SD at the end of the day. Totally. And it gives you a much better perspective about how your asset is performing than your accountant will, because your accountant is going to tell you, oh, this is your balance sheet. This is your P&L. But that's factoring in all the things you're putting into your business for the sake of tax deductions. Right. Mm. I'm going to put all my meals on my company (laughs) card. Every time I go out, I'm going to charge gas to this. You know, you're trying to basically from a tax perspective, put as much possible into the business. So it doesn't give you quite an accurate portrayal trail of how your business is actually doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Totally. totally. Just, that's, that's one thing we did because we just got our 2020 P&L. I um, mean, we do that exact same thing. Like we're, we're writing off expenses, but when we did our, cause we did our exercise, we worked with our VA to be able to put together our P&L and we saw what our SDE mm-hmm. was. And then we saw what, you know, the business made and it was just very different. Right. But, um, you know, put things in, put things into re- realization and, and we realized like, wow, we were, we're looking at things completely different. So we went into a whole different yeah. mindset with it. <laughs> and how did that PNL work out for you guys? The one the that PNL, I sent you. Yeah, it worked out really, really well. The, the template. Um, our cool. VA was actually, um, I guess she had done it. So she worked with a brand that was actually acquired by Thrasio before we acquired her to work with us. Um, mm-hmm. So she was very familiar with the process. She was able to do mm-hmm. it in like, for all of 2020, it took her like a couple hours, basically. So nothing crazy. Dope. It's very easy to implement. Um, and she's doing it on a monthly basis for us now. And we're making, uh, cool. we do a, we're going to be doing a monthly recap meeting to talk about goals and what we can do to increase things. But uh, we've had a stellar start to the year, to say the least. Yeah. Right on. One, That's great to hear. 
I had one more quick question. You said, you know, subscription costs. So, um, do these subscription costs, so for example, let's say I have a subscription cost for tracking uh, profit, you know, like a shopkeeper or a fetcher, for example, you know, that isn't something mm-hmm. that necessarily is necessary to operate the business. Would that be a subscription sub- subscription cost that we include into the PL, or would that be a subscription cost that we could t- potentially take out? That one is is up for negotiation. So what I would do moving forward is when if I were to reach out to these aggregators, I would actually send them two two versions of the PNL. I would send them the version with all of the things in it, like every single thing that we know we've incurred to grow and manage our business. And then I would send them another version that just says, hey, we're taking all of the ad backs out, the things that we would add back in that aren't required for you to continue doing. And this is what we propose our SDE to be. Now, I like this because you're basically telling them, this is how we view the business. You tell us if you agree or not. And then at, mm. that way, you're upfront about some of those costs that may may go against the business or may not go against the business. So you don't have to wait till it comes out in due diligence. Because yeah. if you wait until it comes out in due diligence, then it's like, okay, now we have to backtrack on all the numbers that we had agreed to, mm. to this point. And it just causes a lot more headache. So that's why going back to my point about being as transparent, upfront and honest as possible is super key to this process. Totally. Yeah, trans- transparency is always key. Absolutely. Yeah. Already. Well, um, Rainer, it's been a great podcast. I always, you know, out of these podcasts, I learn a lot myself. So it's, it's selfish in a sense, <laughs> uh, but I always <laughs> have to, to, to dive into kind of what's next for you. Obviously the goal for you is to, to keep building brands, keep selling brands, but mm-hmm. um, what other projects do you have on the go? And uh, what does the next little bit of time look like for you? Sure. So these days I kind of split my time in in three domains, all related to e-commerce, of course. It's building my own brands. Then I also do consulting work for FBA brands and brands that do D2C. D2C is something that I feel is is the huge next step for us Amazon FBA builders. So I consult for brands on D2C. And this year we have a huge project and undertaking to really increase our own D2C channel. And then third is I'm going to start getting into courses. So I've been an advisor and a consultant for different brands, helping them grow their business, but now really helping different brands exit their business. What's the next step? Let's take that next step of exiting. So over the summer, I'm going to be dropping a course called Million Dollar FBA Exit, in which I basically teach people what we've talked about today. Every single step of the process in which how you can sell your FBA business for max profit in 45 days or less without a broker. So the value add is going to be tremendous because if you think about how much a broker would charge you to do all the things that I would teach you, that's going to be, if you sell your business for a million bucks, save you anywhere from a hundred to 150 grand. Yeah. Yeah. You can charge that, Absolutely. charge 50 grand for that course. <laughs> People still get a positive <laughs> well, it, it'll ROI. Be, it'll be a, a definitely a, a very tiny fraction of that, but it, <laughs> I'm hoping that it, it's like 10 X or hundred X worth its cost. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's some extreme you know value. That I'm, I'm excited for that. I'll definitely be hopping in on that. We'll be um, a customer for sure. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Right so, you know, the way that we always like to wrap things up here is our audience and who we really want to hone in on are uh, the younger demographics. So people like us and some, mm-hmm. some and, and, and even people that are wanting to get into entrepreneurship, but don't know where to start. So, um, you know, what is some advice that you can give to someone younger looking to get in business or looking to start an Amazon business? Um, 
you know, knowing and having the experience that you do now in the entrepreneurship world? Totally. Well, I'll, I'll date myself a little bit. I'm 36. I'm going to be turning 36 years old <laughs> and this year. And so, you, young. you know, I, uh, thanks. It's the, the Filipino genes, you yeah. know, it's the Filipino, and, I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah. And, and to be quite honest with you guys, I failed a ton in my younger years, even though I went to a great school. I, I went to Stanford. I was in IT consulting for five years, started to do my own entrepreneurial stuff in 2012. And I struggled for the first three years up until 2015 when I got into to e-commerce. And that's when I was lucky to start having a little bit of success. So for my younger self, something that I would have told myself is like, hey, don't rely on your intelligence. What you need are habits and you need the positive habits that are going to help you progress yourself every single day towards your end goal. And it, there's no such thing as a get rich quick scheme. You have to work super duper hard. And those habits are going to be the foundation for which you build your business upon. Because if you can maximize your productivity, that is already going to give you a competitive advantage over a lot of other people. A second bit of advice that I would have for younger people is that these days, it has never been easier to build a brand, even your own personal brand or an e-commerce brand. So when you have that mindset that things are possible and you just get over this fear of failure and fear of imposter syndrome, that will actually help you accelerate yourself forward and help you be more open to talking about your failures and talking about your successes with those around you. And you'll find that you're going to start attracting other successful people who want to help you out. I love that. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always about building that foundation before you can build upon it, right? And habits and, mm -hmm. you know, having a good solid routine and, and, and setting and being able to set goals and work to those goals. That's, that's been pivotal in our, in our success. I um, mean, being on top of that kind of stuff, because cons consistency brings results at the end of the day. And if you can keep consistent, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's funny because, you know, when we drop off, let's say, for example, I start becoming inconsistent, you can literally feel the impact almost immediately so it's a very easy mm -hmm. like snap you like you know i fell off i'm getting back on track and then you know we're, we're steady and we're rolling again um but yeah some some crazy good advice for for the younger people and i love that um now that i got means, one more that okay, just came to mind it. if you guys cool. want to hear it yes, dude i read this quote i read this quote that was so true of myself when i was younger and it's it, it was a quote it went something like we spend so much time working to get stuff to try and impress people that we truly don't care about. And to me, that really summed it up because when I was younger, I, you know, I was so concerned about like having stuff and being flashy and impressing all the other young people around me. And as I got older, I came to the realization that like, who cares about other people's opinions? All I truly care about or should care about are the people that are in my tightest circle, the people that mm. are closest to me, my friends and my family, and not worry about anybody else. And when you shift your focus in that way, it gives you a lot of clarity that I think is helpful to move yourself forward. <clears throat> I 100% agree with that. I think, you know, at the end of the day, <clears throat> if you don't follow that, and you know, you're not really looking for, let me think of the right, correct words here, but validation. Yeah, exactly. Validation. If you're not essentially, if you're not, 
the people that, that will follow you are the people who truly look up to you. And those are the, the meaningful people. Those are the ones that bring you up at the end of the day. The people that don't necessarily, the haters, so to speak, those are the ones that are going to drive you down. So it's better to cut ties with those guys right off the bat. We're very similar in our mm-hmm. high school, in our high school lives. We were very much so looking to impress people, trying to be as popular as possible. But as soon as we dove into um, our corporate lives and then into our entrepreneurship lives, what we started to do, we, we started to be more vocal around our passion and what we're looking for. And as soon as we started doing that, we realized who our true friends really were at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. that's when we started to, you know, wake up with a lot more energy, with a lot more passion. And we felt like we were impacting a lot more people on that. It kind of comes in tenfold. That makes sense. Yeah. So 100% resonate. Absolutely. Awesome, Rainer. Well, uh, this has been a great episode. I know our audience is going to absolutely love it. And I'm definitely going to be sharing this with my Amazon community. Um, now to sum things up again, Rainer, where can people find you? I don't know if, if you have you know social media or anything like that. I know you've already dropped the name of your course. Um, when that goes live, I'll, I'll definitely be posting that um, on our, our pages and all that kind of stuff. But um, I guess pimp yourself out and, and where can people connect with you? Sure. You can slide up in my DM on Instagram. I'm at Rainier, R-A-N-I-E-R. I don't really use social media, so it might take me a few weeks to <laughs> read your message and then get back to you. You can also email me at my personal email. It's my last name, Godwang, G-A-D-D-U-A-N-G at gmail.com. I have my my EA reads all of my emails and forwards along the more important ones to me and bubble it up. So I can't reply to every single email, but I promise I will read it. And if it warrants a response, I will respond to you in a timely fashion. Amazing. Alrighty. Well, thanks so much. And um, yeah, 